Welcome to Nothing New Under the Sun. It's a podcast about those impressive and inferior movie remakes, those franchises that Hollywood just won't let die. On today's episode, we're going to talk about It. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dave, and this here, as always, is my co-host, Mike. What's going on? Uh, today is the first... Uh, you messed you messed this up because you always ask me what's new, and then I was gonna say something. Uh, something actually is new today because I always say nothing. <laughs> but the, you, but it's, this is the first time you said something other than what's new today. So uh, so now I'm all thrown off. To the, what's new today, Mike? Well, today is the first time that we actually have um, Patreon subscribers. That we we've never had Patreon subscribers when we've recorded a podcast, and as of this recording, right. we have two Patreon subscribers. Pretty stoked about it. Uh, so big shout out to uh, Ben and Brian, uh, who helped us to choose our Halloween-themed uh, uh, Patreon poll. Uh, actually, I think Brian just barely missed the cutoff. Brian, you missed it by one day. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that stinks. Uh, but uh, you both and anyone else who, who subscribes between now and then will get to help us choose our Christmas-themed episode. We had our Patreon Halloween poll up for about a month. And we had one vote for it, so that one vote chose our episode today, and today we will be covering Stephen King's It. So if you want to vote for what our our Christmas-themed episode will be, get on our Patreon. We'll have our next poll up by the time this episode is out. Because if Ben just chooses again, it's going to be It again for Christmas. That would be Not appropriate. hilarious if it's just It every time. <laughs> ben, just It. Just It. Just do It again. I want to hear about It again. <laughs> We're, we're subject to the whims of this psychopath. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a fun topic because um, unlike all of our other topics, Dave has actually read the novel um, that it is based on before, haven't you? I have. I love it. I am a huge Stephen King fan. Uh, I got asked by uh, our friend John, who uh, left us a very nice review on uh, Apple Podcasts, and uh, you can too. Um, he, he asked me, something um like how many stephen king books have you read because i think his his wife asked him or he was in a bet or something and he's like oh i know this guy who read like a bazillion of them and i said i, I bet you i've read like i don't know 15 or, or 16 of them uh and then when i tallied them up it was really something more like 30 to 35 <laughs> uh so i like stephen king a little bit um where does it rank in your uh your um stephen king books that you've read so i will say that it is probably in the top three, not only just for my favorites, but it's generally considered, you know, the the A plus tier Stephen King book, um, along with two others, uh, The Stand and Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, which is about uh, the JFK assassination. So those three books are generally considered his number one, two, and three uh, in some order for for Stephen King fans. Um, I took a small class on Stephen King in my undergrad. I mostly signed up for it because it sounded more fun than taking a real class. Um, and I remember very little about it and Stephen King. Um, so this will be, this will be a fun episode for me to do as well. The reason that you don't remember is because you're an adult now. And when you <laughs> learned about it, you were a child. Right. And now that you're a 31 year old adult, you don't know anything about it anymore. It's so weird that um, me and you seem to have grown up in the same neighborhood, but we only know each other because we ran into the street on that one time while screaming about how movies just keep getting remade and that we decided <laughs> to do this podcast together. That's right. As total strangers. That's it. So it, it um, is Stephen King's 22nd novel. It was released in 1986. It was written during a weird period um, in Stephen King's, uh, we'll, we'll call it his... Uh, 
before after he has his intervention, but before he seeks uh, rehab, it seems. Um, Stephen King um, famously wrote in his memoir that his family had an intervention with him where they literally just took all the trash cans in the house and dumped them out, and they were full of bloody tissues and old cocaine bags and, um, and empty <laughs> cough syrup uh, containers, and they told him that um, he needs to clean up his act or they were all leaving. Um, that happened sometime shortly after the release of Cujo in 1981. Right. But then he says he didn't actually get clean and write a book um, without any drugs until 1991. So somewhere in between there, it was written. Cujo uh, is famously said to have been written in one night uh, by him uh, on a Coke binge. Uh, and he says he doesn't remember writing it. That's right. So... Um, and then sometime after that, he wrote it, which also seems like it was written on a Coke binge, if I'm being completely honest. There's some weird stuff in there. Um, we'll get into it. But what's interesting about Stephen King books, a lot of people might not know, uh, if you don't read a lot of Stephen King books, uh, is that they're all connected in one universe, or at least for the most part. And if they're not, he tends to retroactively connect them in future books. Isn't that what like The Dark Tower is about? It's just kind of retroactively connecting all of the books together? That's right. So um, The Dark Tower is a series that Stephen King has been writing since he was 19 years old. So the first Dark Tower book might be the first manuscript that Stephen King ever wrote. I can't remember if that's true. Carrie is certainly the first book he ever published and got famous for. Um, but when you read The Gunslinger, which is the first Dark Tower book, uh, it definitely f- doesn't feel like his style you know if you are familiar with stephen king his he has a very specific style that you know pervades almost all of his books and the gunslinger feels like it was written by you know a college student what he was at the time uh and so as you go through um the dark tower sort of mythology as you go through the books one by one you can actually look up um that there's like sort of a reading list of the books in order so if you were so inclined to get super into stephen king uh what you might do is read the gunslinger uh the dark tower one and then before you read Dark Tower 2, you read the three or four books that he was writing around that time that are all connected into that one. And then Dark Tower 3, you read the couple books. I want to say that The Stand is tied into that one. And then by t- the time you get to Dark Tower 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, uh, almost all the books that he's written throughout his whole career have tied into that universe. Uh, it being a uh, pretty predominant one for, I think, the second to last or maybe very last Dark Tower book. Cool. So <laughs> uh, I haven't read any of those books. But uh, King says that he started writing this novel in 1981 after uh, Cujo was released, and he um, had first conceived of it during uh, 1978 when what he first envisioned was um, like a troll living in a sewer system. He just wanted to take this old story of like the three Billy Goats gruff of children meeting a troll under a bridge and kind of uh, revamp that for modern times. But the other story that he tells for how he came up with the uh, plot structure for it is that he also just kind of wanted to write a book where a bunch of kids run into a bunch of classic monsters like a werewolf and a vampire and whatever. And he was like, how can we do that? Oh, it's shape-shifting. He, it's a shape-shifting thing, whatever. So. Yeah, well, he definitely accomplished that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that, you know, everybody is familiar with, you know, if you've heard of It, you know that it's a killer clown, but it's actually really not. I mean, the spoiler alert is that it's an alien uh, from outer, outer space that kind of lives in uh, a dormant state beneath this town of Derry, Maine. Uh, and every... I think in the book, it's every 27 years, but in the movies, it's like every 30 or 38 or something. Well, in the new one, it's every 27 again. In the original, it's right. every 30. Yeah. And so 
Um, I think that they tend to play with the dates based on when the movies come out in real life to make them seem a little bit more to fit like the kind of chronology of things. Um, and so it's this alien that crash lands on Earth uh, in a meteor and it lives under this town. And it is sort of a part of Stephen King mythology that he does a lot where these bad guys are what you might call like a psychic vampire, meaning they kind of feed on some sort of emotion. Uh, and uh, Pennywise or it uh, the monster feeds on fear. So it eats people, but what it specifically says is that they, they taste better when they're afraid. So he calls it salting the meat, you know, when he, uh, makes them scary first, you know, makes them afraid first. So he turns himself into whatever it is they're afraid of. So for one of the kids, it's a, a mummy. Like you said, for one of the kids, it's a, it's a werewolf because he goes and sees the werewolf movie, uh, for another, one of the girls, it's her abusive father, et cetera, et cetera. So how old were you when you uh, when you first read It? Um, I actually read It kind of recently. I want to say I maybe read it four or five years ago um, because I had been doing that thing where you go through the Dark Tower um, and you read all the books in order of how they're relevant to the story. And It doesn't become relevant until maybe the sixth or seventh Dark Tower book. Um, and so I had read a lot of Stephen King beforehand. It was exciting to kind of get up to it um, because, you know, such a legendary book. Um, and I've I've purposefully kept some of his best books for later. Like I'm actually reading through The Shining right now for the first time. I You know, I'd seen The Shining, the movie, but um, he is, so, he is such a, a, a breadth of material that you kind of have to not you know, blow your load the, right off the bat. You know, you, you don't want to read like the top five or six, like you kind of spread them out um, because, you know, you could easily read a Stephen King book every year for the rest of your life uh, and, and be good. All right. So this is a very complicated book. Um, people always talk about how like it couldn't, like the movie versions usually fall short of um, going in, of portraying exactly what the book kind of is trying to get across to the reader. So if you could really quickly, could you just sum up um, the entire macroverse and Maturin the Turo and the, uh, the ritual of Chud? <laughs> so uh, in Stephen King's, the di- I know you, I know that was meant to be a joke setup, but no, but really I can probably. Uh, in, Stephen King's, <laughs> in Stephen King's The Dark Tower universe, uh, it's uh, sort of like a connected multiverse of all the books that are, that are uh, connected through this main world this main universe that they call like the dark tower uh world and in it there are sort of these demigod characters um one of them is a bear uh one of them is a turtle and the turtle in the dark tower world has to do with uh the kind of benevolent deity that uh is the opposite to it in the book it you know so if it is an evil alien then the turtle is kind of the good guy that's on their side that's kind of helping things along uh, for the main characters. Uh, they don't really get into that so much in any of the movies, really, um, because some of the stuff, you know, probably Stephen King was doing a lot of drugs, uh, and it's very cosmic and strange. It's almost like when you start to get into really reading about the Marvel stuff, like past the Avengers, and you start to reading about, like, the one above all and the uh, the living tribunal, and things get a little strange when you start to get into this weird cosmic stuff. Uh, but the idea is, you know, there's the alien, there's all that stuff happening in the town of Derry, and then on the macro scale, there's this benevolent turtle deity who connects to the Dark Tower universe, and he's kind of helping them along. And his name is Maturin, uh, and he's a giant turtle. And I want to say that Bill Denborough, you know, the main character, uh, Stuttering Bill, he ends up flying through this cosmic acid trip and meeting the turtle near the end. Uh, it gets a little weird. Okay. <laughs> interesting 
So um, it is released. Uh, it was the best-selling book in America in 1986, and um, Stephen King made a ton of money. <laughs> and um, the It miniseries didn't come about until um, in the late 80s. Uh, in 1989, Pet Cemetery is released, and Pet Cemetery is a huge box office um, success. And um, all these different studios start acquiring left and right um, whatever Stephen King properties they can get. And ABC Television acquires the rights to a television miniseries based on it. What's interesting about, you know, sort of adaptations or, or what you might call interpretations of Stephen King's work uh, is that Stephen King, like I said, he has so much material. Uh, and it's usually uh, a super hit that people are clamoring to get uh, adaptations of his, of his works and interpretations of his works. Um, and some of them, I think, on his website, he allows students to do for free. Uh, but basically, you can be a- a assured that whenever a new book comes out, some movie studio is looking to adapt it, um, just on the off chance that it's a new It or a new Under the Dome or a new The Mist or a new The Shining, right? Because the chances of them striking gold are, are quite high. Uh, but unfortunately, because there's so much material and so many studios try to interpret it, whether it's for TV movies or, or feature-length motion pictures, the the resulting quality is really varied. I mean, so you get something like um, Stanley uh, Kubrick's, you know, The Shining, right? Um, Stanley Kubrick, am I crazy? You're right. Yes, yeah, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Right? That's that's um, <laughs> yeah, and um, and that's obviously it's actually awesome. Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick, actually, Kubrick. Yeah, the no, Koo, yeah, Kubrick. Kubrick, <laughs> uh, The Shining, um, and uh, then you get something that's really bad, like I don't know, maybe. Um, Pierce Brosnan in, in Bag of Bones or whatever. Um, and so it's not always a guarantee that the Stephen King interpretation is going to be good. And what's also super interesting is that it's not always a guarantee that Stephen King agrees. So famously, he does not like The Shining, uh, but he really, really liked Under the Dome, which was just a straight up dog shit show. Uh, and uh, he is often sometimes even impressed by their interpretations of uh, their endings, like Mike would know about uh, what famous uh, movie does Stephen King like the ending better than his own book. The Mist. Are you, are you quizzing yeah. me on my opinions on things? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Mist uh, changed the ending around, and Stephen King um, said that he wished that he wrote the uh, the movie ending because it was much better than the ending that he wrote. And, and that's, a, uh, that's a running joke in um, both adaptations of It. Is that um, the character Bill, who's obviously, especially in the miniseries, a stand-in for Stephen King, can't yeah. write the ending of any of his stories well? Uh huh. Absolutely. I mean, uh, unfortunately, in real life, if you are a big Stephen King fan, you'll know that it's usually like the first eighty-five percent of the book is killer, and the last fifteen percent, it's like if if the book has a great ending, it's like a cherry on top. <laughs> so, um, Pet Cemetery, huge hit. It is acquired by ABC. It's greenlit to be a 10-hour miniseries directed by George A. Romero, who wanted to direct Pet Cemetery but had to drop out. Um, after fighting with the studio on budget, George A. Romero drops out. This is, um, what was our other, we had another episode where George A. Romero was going to, oh, The Mummy, where George A. Romero Mummy. was going to do a version and then had to drop out because of budget. So, sorry, George, <laughs> you never get to see your vision through to the end. You missed out, bro. <laughs> So George A. Romero drops out. He goes on to do the Night of the Living Dead uh, remake, um, and they bring in a new director, and they cut the series down to just a four-hour miniseries in two parts that would air on ABC in 1990. 
part one was the fifth highest rated program on um, Sunday, November 18th, 1990, with an average of 18.5 uh, Nielsen rating and um, was watched by 17.5 million households. Part two was the second highest rated program on Tuesday, November 20th, uh, 1990, with a 20.6 rating watched by 19.2 million households. So this show, as far as television goes, was a huge hit. We don't have monetary uh, records here like we usually do for our for our uh for the franchises that we're covering but 19.2 million households is is a lot of people uh and you know obviously notable from the 1990 series is the portrayal of pennywise by tim curry which is just sort of an all-time uh remembered quite well by everyone i i don't think i don't that... think i don't think without tim curry's performance in this movie this movie would be remembered well no at all. agreed i'm gonna agreed. say right it's, now I, I don't think it's i don't think it's straight dog shit you know like it's not like it's terrible um it's definitely we've definitely watched worse for yeah. sure it's it's definitely of its time you know the acting is not that great the editing is pretty corny uh the the effects aren't good you know but Tim Curry holds it together. He's so committed to the part. Um, and he's scary in a way that we'll talk about that Bill Skarsgård as um, at Bill Skarsgård, right? The new? Yes, uh, Bill Skarsgård. Uh, Tim Curry is scary in a way in this that he's not in the new movie. Um, he's, you know, the new Pennywise is definitely much more physically horrifying with his teeth and all that stuff. Uh, but Tim Curry seems a little bit more psychologically scary in this movie. And I remember people um, telling me, you know, when the new movie was coming out and I would say at my job that I was stoked to go see it, they would say like, oh, my God, I remember Tim Curry as Pennywise when I was a kid and I'm still scarred. Oh, it was so scary. So when they were casting this movie, um, they were originally looking at Roddy McDowell, Malcolm McDowell and Alice Cooper. Uh, for the role of Pennywise. Huh. Um, all of them uh, auditioned and were considered, but didn't really make the cut. Um, they were looking for somebody else, and they really wanted Tim Curry, so they reached out to him. But he had just finished filming Legend, where he plays the darkness. It's it's Satan. He's the giant, it's the giant devil thing. Ah. Um, which was a extensive makeup job that took hours in a makeup chair. And he really didn't want to go straight from that to doing another job with extensive makeup. So they had to convince him that the makeup for Pennywise the Clown would be really limited. And they're like, no, you're so great. Like, you'll just have, like, a really animated and over-the-top performance. We barely will have to put makeup on you. So that's what actually got him to sign on for the role. We almost got um, Pennywise played by Alice Cooper. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, what's interesting about 1990, it also, you're talking about making the cut, you know, is that they have to choose what kind of stuff from the book to keep and what kind of stuff to omit. Uh, and I thought they did a fairly uh, faithful job with regard to the book. The new movies take a little bit more creative license with what they want to uh, choose, what they want to keep, and what they want to cut, uh, which is fine. You know, it's o- it's always open to interpretation. Um, but we should say right at the top that there's some stuff in the book that they literally could not and should not uh, adapt for screen. There is a very egregious um, sex part with some of the kids when they're very young. Uh, which, even in reading the book... From what I understand, there's lots of sex parts. Um, (laughs) Stephen King, I think when he writes books, he tries to really represent what it's like to be a teenager. Um, And so he's trying to be realistic. But there is, near the end of the book, um, I I don't know if I would call it despicable, but a fairly unnecessary um, 
sex scene that's way too graphic and the kids are way too young um and it's not representative of of uh you know there's no justification for it really in my opinion i mean he was just on a lot of drugs when he wrote it um unfortunately in a lot of stephen king books he's a great writer very talented um and he writes some really scary stuff but occasionally um it goes a little too far i think and i i can tolerate some pretty dark stuff uh i'm picturing you know there's another scene in the stand actually that's so ridiculously horrific that it's just totally unnecessary it almost feels like it's kind of like gross out like they're he's trying to do it to repulse you while you're reading the book um and so what i just mean is that there's some stuff in the movie that they uh that they cut and it's not like if they had done a more faithful job recreating the book it would be better i think there's stuff that they they needed to cut uh on purpose um and it's fine it's that part in the book honestly i don't think contributes anything really so it was just over the top and, and stupid there's um there's actually a part in um in the book that i'm surprised doesn't get put into the movies because it actually was so uh ridiculously uh well i'll say it, it's so painfully affecting so there's a part where henry bowers uh poisons mike hanlon's dog um and i actually started crying when i was reading that part in the book and i never have that sort of reaction when i'm reading uh, it was so sad. I couldn't believe how sad it was. Um, but one of the things that the 1990 movie does get right is sort of like this world building of the town um, of Derry. Uh, in the book, a, a big aspect of it is that the people in the town are kind of complacent uh, with it. Uh, like in the 1990 movie, they say, um, in the 1990 movie, they say it's the Derry disease. Uh, where everyone kind of intentionally ignores it. Um, and it's like a metaphor for the adults not understanding what it's like to be a kid anymore. They're losing their innocence and they're becoming more mature and they're intentionally forgetting the childhood. Uh, and in the book, they really hammer home that it is dairy or or the town has sort of absorbed the energy of it in so that insofar as the adults aren't just complacent, but they are all kind of affected by it. Uh, the adults kind of are scary representations of the monster themselves uh and so that is a, a huge part that the 1990 movie gets right that the new movie uh doesn't even really touch on and there's a lot of things that being a made for tv version of this story uh caused them to have to cut down on for ratings purposes right yeah like there's there's a lot of things that the new movies were allowed to include just content wise that made the movie much scarier and more psychological. Um, the, the just comparing the two opening scenes of Georgie um, meeting Pennywise for the first time. Oh yeah, it's night and day with how scary they are. I know. And there's a there's a lot of times when this miniseries uh, came off almost like a uh, lifetime original movie for me. Yeah, where it was absolutely. so corny yeah. and cheesy, and the acting was so bad. Um, and I, I was trying to just remind myself that this wasn't really, though I'm sitting here watching a four hour movie. Do you haven't even brought that up? This was four hours it long. Is, yeah, in its ridiculously current long. It was broken up in two parts for television. But if you find this to watch today, it is four hours long and it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's insanely long. And yeah, a lot of the stuff could be easily cut. <laughs> yeah, it's, but I had to keep reminding myself that this was made for television. Um, I did want to go back uh, uh, while filming that opening scene um, between Georgie and Pennywise. Uh, Toadie Dakota, who played um, Georgie, actually was so frightened 
that he um, said, Tim, you're scaring me to Tim Curry. And Tim Curry had to respond with, I'm sorry, but I'm supposed to be scaring you. You're supposed to be scared. We're making a horror movie. So I thought that was like a cute little, I'm just imagining Tim Curry, like talking to the little kid being like, well, yeah, dude. Like, <laughs> like good, good. Kids, kids like, I'd like the brick of tears. And Tim Curry is like, I hope I'm scaring you. <laughs> um, and a lot of the actors um, while working, were excited to work on this because they were huge fans of, uh, Stephen King, especially John Ritter. Um, John Ritter had a fun little story that he used to tell, where um, he approached a couple of the um, di- like uh, the producers on the film and asked um, if the giant turtle was going to appear in the miniseries. Sure. And the studio asked if he was crazy. <laughs> Just outright dismissed him. Yeah. Like, no. What's wrong with you? Um, and there's a lot of uh, people, including Ritter and the director, who were upset with the way the final showdown between Pennywise and the kids um, ended up because they, John Ritter especially, felt that um, if they couldn't be faithful to the source material, which he felt would be impossible for this made-for-TV version, that they should have um, all the characters have an actual showdown with Pennywise as he's the real villain of the movie. Right. Um, but they felt that when they went into shooting for that film or for that scene they were going to be able to put to film best they could um, this psychological ritual of chud that occurs. Um, But really all it ends up being is all the adult characters beating this giant spider costume guy with sticks. They literally like, they they just beat the shit out of it at the end. (laughs) It just looks bad. It looks so terrible. Yeah, it's not good. Um, I also would like to talk about how... uh, Though we talk, though you brought up that um, you felt it was a good thing that they took out the uh, the giant orgy scene with Bev. What is with everybody like touching her super weird all the time in all of the scenes where the characters are together? It, it is extremely strange. It's very weird. There are there are all con- Bev will like no matter what is going on where all the characters are together, Bev will be in like a seated position on a couch or something, and one of the guys will just walk up behind her and start like caressing her face. Like, what are we doing? Who does this? Is this how like adults act? It's not yeah. how me and my friends act when we're around each other. I yeah. have no idea what's going on. We when uh, Angela and I uh, watched this, Angela was like, "Why is she kissing everyone on the mouth? Why are they always touching her?" It it is extremely weird. It's, it made me really uncomfortable. Like at like at certain times, like it just like. There is no reason for them to be this like overly sexual towards the one woman in the in the room. Like, is, is that how people act? I don't know if that was I was when I was watching it because uh, it, it it's so unnecessary and so egregious that I was wondering if that was their way of kind of saying like, okay, we didn't put that bad part in the book in, but here's kind of what it is. You know, we were just kids during the '90s, so like maybe this is how all adults act. Maybe our parents were just walking around and just like caressing women's faces. I don't know. Ooh, I hope not. Oh man. <laughs> um, there, there are actually two other parts uh, that are pretty horrifying in the book that they basically cut from both uh, adaptations. One is that there's a big racial component in the book, uh, and I, I'll also say that they they have a hard R N word in the 1990. Uh, oh yeah, they movie. do. That was pretty bad. Um, but I can't they have, believe that made it onto television. Yeah. Um, so in the book version, uh, a big part of Mike Hanlon's trauma that he has to resolve is that the town of Derry has a history of being uh, of, of having committed a hate crime against um, uh, a dance hall, kind of like a VFW, where a lot of black characters are dancing uh, and it gets set on fire. Um, so that's not really in, I mean, they kind of mention it, uh, and they kind of do like a little bit of a flashback to it, I think in the second new it movie, but 
Uh, they don't really get into it, uh, and they don't really hammer home on the kind of racial element that Mike Hanlon has to overcome. Uh, and then also there's this other scene, uh, not to do with any of that, where uh, this character, Patrick Hochstetter, uh, who is played um, in the new movie by the kid from Bloodline. Uh, I can't remember exactly what his name is, but um, there's a, a horrific really scary scene that I wish they had adapted uh, in the new new movies where he is kind of being driven by Pennywise to do messed up stuff the same way that adult Henry Bowers is. Uh, and he has a refrigerator in the woods where he keeps all these dead animals. Uh, and eventually Pennywise kind of like has, I can't remember what it is, like locusts or something come out of the refrigerator and eat him. Uh, so that scene is pretty horrifying. Uh, and it would have been definitely doable in the new movies definitely not for the 1990 movie but it would have been definitely port- portrayable in the new movies and they just didn't do it i also have to quickly point out that seth green is in this movie oh um, yeah when i was watching with my fiance she was like hey that kid looks just like seth green and i had to just like <laughs> sit there and stare at her and be like should i should i tell her is <laughs> like are, are you are you serious seth green is great um but finn wolfhard and bill Hader are absolutely perfect casting for Richie Tozier. When I saw Finn Wolfhard in the new movie and I saw Bill Hader in the the sequel to the new movie, uh, it was exactly a confirmation of how I pictured Richie Tozier in the books. Uh, but Seth Green is great. I mean, he's... He's doing his best. He was clearly told that his his character is like a classic prankster. He was given like these very force-fed lines for him to say as like pranky jokes he literally has a hand buzzer when he meets the rest of the losers gang right, right um who are called the lucky seven gang in this i guess they're not called the losers i guess yeah, that was too, like, de- yep. demeaning um he's he's uh, he's trying <laughs> yeah one of the I things that i think he was the only one who didn't who wasn't afraid of all the bullies like whenever yeah. the whenever the bullies would show up he was the only one who would like try to stand his ground against them that's right. Really and, the, like, and that's pretty true to the book also. You know, you, you have a little bit of like a, um, uh, you're rooting for uh, Richie Tozier because he can stand up to Henry Bowers and the other guys. Uh, Kid Ben in the 1990 movie, I think is really good. Uh, I thought he was definitely the best actor, the most emotive, um, and he does the best job of, of kind of playing his role. Can we talk about Eddie's admission to the group before they all go fight the giant spider monster that he's a virgin? Uh, what was very that strange. about? I have no it, idea. That was it, such a weird scene. Um, I it's I don't know what they were trying. I don't even know what they were going for. Like, were they trying to just like give us one more emotional beat where like we feel for these characters? Because he stands around and admits that like he's a virgin, and they all run up and like hug him. You know, and, <laughs> like he went through some sort of like trauma. Like it, you'd think he was like admitted like my uncle used to touch me when I was a kid. Like yeah. the exact in the exact opposite direction. Um, he says, I could never sleep with anyone I didn't love, and I've only loved you guys. Is he admitting that he always wanted to, like, fuck the rest of the Losers Club? Like, what is going on? I like, think <laughs> I think um, two of the characters are uh, supposed to be, maybe have, like, a little bit of a, a gay relationship. Um, I can't remember exactly who it is. I want to say maybe it's Richie Tozier and, and Eddie. Um, because well, that's the who end- it is in the new one. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the 1990 movie... Uh, they say something like, uh, Richie becomes a famous comedian at the end. And wouldn't you know it, his co-star looks just like Eddie Kasprak. Um, so they kind of get into it a little bit, but, uh, it was very strange. And in fact, the Richie character looks at him like, uh, okay. And it's like, okay, well, if you're going to have him make fun of him for saying that, like, isn't that what the audience is thinking too? You do have Stan ask him, uh, what's your sex life at when he has, uh, when he's the head in the, uh, 
in the in yep. the fridge. Yep. So yeah, maybe yeah. they were trying to hint at that. I don't know. I I feel like they were just like they figured they needed one more emotional beat for us to like really get that all these characters are so like closely knit. Yeah. And this was this was the wrong thing to go for. <laughs> I just super I don't weird. Know super why weird. they would think this was okay? Um, I think I think we've covered everything with this movie. Uh, well, one of the things I'll say is that adult Bill's ha- his ponytail is atrocious. It should have oh, been yeah. destroyed. No, it's so ugly. How, how dare um, they do that to that man? <laughs> they're trying to make him look like Stephen King. Stephen King had a right. ponytail at the time, so we have to give this guy this ugly ponytail. It just it um, didn't fit his... It didn't look like that man would ever have grown that hair. When we were kids, this was on constantly, right? Every yep. Halloween, this, this would replay on TV. Um, and uh, I just wanted... I had in my notes here that for about 15 minutes, it looks like a real movie. Um, when the kids enter the sewer to fight Pennywise, as all the children, and they yep. fight um, Tim Curry, uh, that scene is so well done. When the first bully gets sucked down the tube and he's going backwards, it looks like an old schlocky 80s horror movie, like Killer Clowns from Outer Space or something. Sure. All those movies that yeah. I love to watch around he, he this time He front flips into the, the tube or whatever. Yeah, and he turns into a claymation for like two seconds. Uh-huh. Um, those that, that whole scene is great, but then as soon as we get back to where uh, Stan kills himself, we are right back to Lifetime original movie uh, quality. Like it, yeah, just, the, it's uh... the, it turns into a real movie for exactly 15 minutes, and then we're right back <laughs> to like just garbage. Yeah, you can um, tell but, they, they sort of oscillate where they use the budget, right? They're like, oh, no, literally no budget for this part, like all the budget for this part. Right. But our whole generation grew up with rose-tinted glasses for this because it played every Halloween while we were kids. Um, and people had crazy nostalgia for Tim Curry as Pennywise, which brought it um, into the late 2000s, where Fox had acquired the rights to make a movie, and they wanted to... Um, come out with one uh, as soon as they could, but it took them about nine years to actually get one into production. So uh, the movie started production in 2009 with David Kajganich. <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs> uh, who at the time had only written small-time horror films like The Invasion and Blood Creek, but he went on to do the screenplay of 2018 Suspiria, which could have been today's episode that was on the poll, but that's not what made it. Um, not what made it. Uh, uh, attached to write the movie. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. Um, it was uh, it was his idea to give the movie an R rating so that they could make it more faithful to the book in tone and content and make it more scary um, and really pull off the kind of psychological horror that the um, that Stephen King intended when he wrote the story more so than the original uh, television version was able to do. He stepped out of the project in 2012, and Kerry Fukunaga took over from True Detective, Beast of No Nation, and the upcoming No Time to Die. That um, is which... so up my alley when uh, the director of True Detective, one of my favorite television shows, was attached to it, I, my heart sung. So he was on the project for um, about three more years. Um, He was signed on to rewrite the script and direct the first movie centering around the kids. And then they were going to make a second movie based on the success of that first movie. Um, Carrie Fukunaga said, I was trying to make an unconventional horror film. It didn't really fit into the algorithm of what they knew they could spend and make money back on based on not offending their standard genre audience. So he was forced to step away from making the movie. Um, He said, we invested years and so much antidotal storytelling in it. 
Uh, Chase and I both put our childhood into that story. So our biggest fear was they were going to take our script and bastardize it. So I'm actually thankful they were they are going to rewrite the script. Um, I wouldn't want them stealing our childhood memories and using that. I was honoring Stephen King's spirit of it, but I needed to update it. So it seems like he put a lot of like his old actual childhood memories and experiences into this story and then just stepped away with it. Well, um, so he went on to do um, True Detective instead, and the studio was looking for a new director. So the Duffer Brothers stepped in. They pitched their own version. Um, they were very excited to do this uh, 1980s children fighting monsters um, stu- thing for the studio. The studio really didn't believe in their vision, so they uh, fired the Duffer Brothers, who then went on to make Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Annie Muschietti took over in 2015 um, and began rewriting Carrie Fukunaga's script, which he actually left a lot of the original script to, um, in there, but he wanted to adapt it and make it more faithful to um, Stephen King's book. And that's the final version that we got. Um, this movie, th- while all of this was going on, little did they know that the world was preparing itself for this movie in a way that the studio could never have prepared for. Dave, how much do you remember of the 2016 Clown Panic? So I actually have this written down. I thought that that was guerrilla marketing for the movie. Was that it not, had nothing it, to nothing, do with not the related movie. at all? That's so crazy. No. So in 2016, um, clowns—they're everywhere. People are freaking out. The first is spotted outside the town of Greenville, South Carolina. One woman filed a police report with the sheriff because her son saw two clowns in the woods whispering and making strange noises. And once this was reported on the news, people just went crazy. Clowns are spotted everywhere. You can go, um, I think it's heavy, heavy.com has a news article from 2016 where they list all the clown sightings and reports um, for every state and every single state in the country has clown sightings. Um, some leading to arrest, some being actual clowns, like there's video of them terrorizing people. Um, one man in Kentucky was arrested for dressing up like a clown and hiding in the woods. In Alabama, a woman called 911 because she was terrified after seeing a man dressed as a clown in a Walmart parking lot waving <laughs> at cars that drove by. Um, schools in Ohio, in Ohio were closed after a clown was seen like um, just wandering the streets the night before. Um, and in New York, there was video of a clown chasing teens out of a subway. So this was, this was just going on everywhere. It incited mass panic. Um, to the point where just because the the idea was out that clowns are out and about and scaring people, that people started seeing clowns every day, all the time, and police were over flooded with calls for um for clown sightings. Um, I wanted to bring up pareidolia. Did you ever hear of pareidolia? Mm, yeah, I can picture the word in my mind, but I don't know what it means. Pareidolia is the tendency for incorrect perception of a stimulus or an object, a pattern or meaning known to the observer, such as seeing uh, shapes in clouds, seeing faces in inanimate objects yes, or abstract that, patterns. I, I have heard of this before. Yeah, it's like when you see when you see a face when there isn't one there, yeah. Right. So once, like when all the pictures of like inanimate objects that have faces on them that you see online, once the idea was out there that there are scary clowns about, people started seeing scary clowns That's all right. the time, everywhere. And it became like a paranoid craze that overtook the united states in october 
Um, the, the scientific power of suggestion is uh, very strong. Right. The scientific explanation for this is that um, we as human beings are such social creatures that, and we cremate, uh, communicate so much of our thoughts and emotions through our faces. Um, MRI studies of the human brain have found that uh, cognitive processes are activated by face-like objects, alerting the observer to both the emotional state and identity of the subject before the conscious mind even begins to process or even receive the information. So our brains are conditioned to find a face of a person and analyze and assess um, the safety and danger of the situation that face is in before we as people even recognize that there is another person present in the room. Wow. So when you are in a dark space and you see a face or a ghost or something, that's probably your brain just trying to look for something that it can assess for danger. And the thing it's most likely or most trained to look for are other people's faces. So you're going to see faces or stuff. Or if you've been hearing over the internet and the news that there are clowns everywhere, you're going to see clowns. That's so right. that's a, Yeah, that makes perfect sense. This actually led to um, a 500-person uh, uh, riot in Penn State known as the Penn State Clown Riot, where um, <laughs> kids... From Penn State, took to the streets, screaming about clowns, running up and down the streets, just um, angrily combing the streets, looking for clowns, um, screaming, fuck that clown. Uh, reporters were quick to <laughs> note that no clowns were located in the clown hunt, and there was no evidence found that suggests evil clowns were ever there to begin with, but this still happened. Oh my god. <laughs> so, that is one year out from the release of It, and when the It um, trailers started hitting uh started hitting theaters um everyone was reminded of this giant clown panic and it was great guerrilla marketing as you said for the film even though it wasn't on purpose um there was uh pranks uh started to escalate again during the time where these trailers were released um of there was a few clown sightings that didn't really get up to its uh its peak in the clown panic um but people started tying red balloons to sewer grates um, in Litz, Pennsylvania, and uh, people started calling the police about these balloons that were tied to sewer grates. So I thought that was all super hilarious. Excellent. <laughs> the, the marketing team was probably stoked about it. They were just wringing their hands like Mr. Burns. That's right. <laughs> they could free advertising. They couldn't have done better themselves if they tried. Some guy at the studio is like, did you do this, Johnson? Did you arrange all this? And that guy's like, I, uh, maybe. They're like, You're, you get a raise. <laughs> right. Of course I did. I sent all those clowns out myself. That's right. <laughs> uh, and speaking of the power of suggestion, we suggest that you uh, go to our website URL at www.nothingnew.show uh, and you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, the same thing. So it's instagram.com slash nothingnew.show uh, we would really appreciate it if you would check out the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash nothing new under the sun. And all of these links are always in the show notes. Uh, thanks again to our patrons, uh, Ben and Brian. Uh, when you become a subscriber, uh, you get access to voting on future episodes, uh, the ever-changing upcoming schedule, uh, and later on exclusive episode content just for you guys. Uh, word of mouth is always the best way that podcasts get found out about. So please, you know, if you dig it, tell your friends, tell your family, just tell one person. Just say like, hey, I listen to this podcast right now. Uh, it's kind of neat. Uh, you maybe you should check it out if you like movies. 
Uh, and uh, if possible, you could leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Big thanks to John for leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And thank you, Ben, for participating in our poll that chose today's episode. You're the one person who, uh, who voted, so this is all for you. We do it. We do it all for you. We talked about how Tim Curry was the glue that held the entire original made-for-TV version of this together. And Bill Skarsgård, likewise, does an amazing job as Pettywise um, in this version, going in an entirely different direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When the movie was first being developed in 2009, Tim Curry was actually offered the chance to reprise the role, but he turned it down, feeling that somebody else should... uh, Take, give their take on the character to make this movie more original. Huh. Um, ben Mendelsohn was offered the role, and he was interested, but he turned it down when he could not agree with the studio on a salary. Uh, he's great, though. Yes, he. Uh, everybody, they they have a lot of uh, great cho- choices here. Will Poulter um, was offered the role, and he accepted, but he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts um, after the production was pushed back so many times. And then uh, Hugo Reaving and Bill Skarsgård both auditioned for the role, but it was given to Skarsgård um, over Hugo Weaving because they felt that Skarsgård could both do like playful and creepy, and Hugo huh. Weaving was just creepy. Just creepy. So imagine getting that note. You're an actor, and it's like, I'm sorry, you're 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 just creepy. We're looking for something that's a little <laughs> bit more than just creepy. So we're gonna go with this other guy. Um, when uh, auditioning for the role. Uh, Bill Skarsgård was told to show up to the audition in clown face. So he said he had this amazing moment where he's driving down the street in clown face. And he's also told to um, practice his clown laugh uh, uh. before he showed up. So he's driving to the audition in his car in full clown makeup, practicing clown laughs and clown smiles sure. <laughs> in the mirrors yeah, yeah, yeah. of his car. And he took like, when he stopped at like a red light, he took a moment to like look around at all the pedestrians like around like staring at him. And he just had like a moment of realization of like what his life had become in that moment. <laughs> I just <laughs> imagine that not knowing he was going to get the part that must have been a really low point in his life. <laughs> Well, now we know that since he's got the part, we can call him an it guy. That's true. Great. Now you have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Bill Skarsgård um, was hired immediately because he was so playful and creepy. He was um, he was able to smile in a weird way that intrigued the director, and that became the iconic like Pennywise smile. Um, and he was actually also able to put his eyes in two different directions, which is not a trick that they do with CGI. Bill Skarsgård can apparently just look off in two different ways. Oh, my God. Because um, that's great. Director Andy Muschietti was describing what he wanted the mannerisms of Penny Rise to be. And that was actually something that Andy Muschietti came up with. He said, I'd also like to use digital effects to try and make your eyes look in two different directions so that like... Um, it adds a really unsettling and disturbing look to Pennywise. And Skarsgård just went, oh, I can do that, and did it. And he was like, oh, <laughs> you're <hired>. great. <laughs> so um, a lot of the other characteristics um, that made Pennywise so awesome were um, just also other mistakes that came across uh, throughout production. Um, the, uh, the drooling that Pennywise does. He's always constantly drooling profusely. Uh-huh. Yep. And that was literally just because the teeth prosthetics that they gave Bill Skarsgård were so big, they made him drool. And so they, <laughs> but they, but they liked the way that it looked. So they're like, all right, like we're leaving that in there. We're not going to fix it. So, so I heard that that was why um, Heath Ledger's Joker licks his lips so often because the, uh, the prosthetics would get super dry and weird feeling. So he would like lick his lips and they were like, Oh, just keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. Happy accidents. So, um, 
the uh, costume designer who designed Pennywise wanted to incorporate various eras throughout the history of clowning, including medieval, renaissance, Elizabethan, and Victorian, to emphasize that Pennywise was immortal and probably had taken different parts of each of these time periods to put his character, quote-unquote, together. Yeah, his uniform does kind of look like a like a Victorian queen outfit or something like that. It's very unsettling. Right, so they purposefully were trying to get the give you the feeling that this was put together over like centuries to right. um where pennywise was just going th- through um this routine of gathering and eating children um there actually was a scene that was filmed for this and later deleted where pennywise was terrorizing a young mother in the 17th century um he uh, bill skarsgård said that this was one of the most like scary and unnerving scenes that they actually filmed for the film that unfortunately ended up getting cut uh and that's saying something because there are some terrifying scenes in it 2017 and 2019 skarsgård says that there was a scene shot um that was a flashback from the 1600s before pennywise was pennywise quote unquote um the scene turned out really really disturbing and i'm not the clown i look more like myself he goes on to say it's very disturbing um and sort of a backstory for what it is or where Pennywise came from. And it seems like the scene would have been, uh, like, literally just Billy Skarsgård um, demanding. Here, uh, he says, It was Pennywise way back at the beginning of Derry convincing a woman to give him her baby to eat it. It was Ugh. scary. And the thing was this, that was the scariest part of it was that it was very direct. It was, if you don't do this, these things are going to happen. And this is what I'm going to do to you. Um, and they were all terrible. And it was just like, so it was just Billy Skarsgård demanding that this woman let him eat her baby. Damn. <laughs> so that um, that almost made it into the cut of the second film, uh, It Chapter 2, but also later was left on the cutting room floor. But it inspired all the scenes in the old woman's house, in Bev's old house, yeah. where you see Bill Skarsgård in the 1700s or 1600s yep. as the old um, traveling performance artist. Yeah, so... One of the things, you know, that that leads us to is how much scarier these movies are than the 2000 or the 1990 version, right? Uh, You know, they updated technology, our sort of standards for what we can show on TV and on movies has changed. Uh, It's a movie versus being something for television. Um, But these two movies are insanely scary, I think. They they are way scarier than I thought they would be. It Chapter 1, for sure, is a terrifying movie. This is probably, I would say, one of the best horror movies that that is ever made. I'd put it up there. I I agree. Um, This is, for sure, the definitive version of this story put to film. Yep, absolutely right. Uh, it Chapter 2, I guess we'll get into it, uh, is definitely more funny than scary. In fact, I didn't really like it too much. But It Chapter 1, um, It Chapter 2 has its it has its, its shining moments, but It Chapter 1 is almost a perfect horror movie. It, it's terrific. It's horrifying. The killing of Georgie when uh, Pennywise's jaw unhinges like a shark uh, and the teeth come out, I got shivers. I, I got chills. Right. So the it chapter two, I I, I, they, I feel like they didn't really know how to go for it. There's so many times in this film before um, Pennywise even shows up, where this movie perfectly encapsulates what it's like to be a child who is afraid of stuff irrationally. Yep. yep. Like the scene where Georgie goes down to the basement in the beginning. Ooh and it's yeah. Just, they just use atmosphere and light and shadow 
to create a creepy scene. You don't need a monster there. Like, nobody shows up to scare him. There's no creepy faces in the dark or whatever. He just goes down there, and it's scary. And I think we all remember feeling that way when we were kids. Yeah, um, I still feel that afraid way. Being afraid of going down into, <laughs> going down into the dark basement. Um, another great scene is where Stan... Um, is walking past the creepy painting and he has to cover his face because he doesn't oh, want to look at it. Man. He's a, the he skinny is, lady painting. Oh my he's God. He's about like 10 years old, right? He recognizes that this is a not, this isn't real. It doesn't pose any threat to him, but it's just so creepy looking that it scares him and he doesn't want to look at it. And there's just so many moments of that, like that, that are so great oh, dude, in this what about film. What, the, to scene set up, with the, the scene with the projector when they're watching the projector screen uh, in the in the garage. Right, and then Pennywise actually jumps out of the projector. Oh my but there's so God, many of so those scary. scenes that are just that just use that that feeling that we all experienced as kids to set up the um, emotional tension in the in the scene. You don't need to know that Pennywise is like around the corner or that he's going to jump out and scare you or that he's going to whatever. It's just scary because they're children in this situation. And I think the second movie loses a lot when it moves to adults and doesn't figure out how to gain that back. No, I it's agree. Almost it's almost like the second one. Well, we'll get into it, but they keep cutting back to the kids because the kids were. It was easier to do that with the kids than it is with the adults. That's right. Yeah. The um. I think they made the second one a little too funny. Uh, it almost felt at some points like it was a parody of a horror movie, uh, especially because Bill Hader is so funny in it. Um, that it almost it almost feels like scary movie or something like that to me. Like it's like a weird like Cabin in the Woods maybe. Like it's like a, a send up of a horror movie, whereas the first one is like a legit horror movie. Um, I felt that this movie was very smart to split the story into two parts, where you have one half with the kids and one half with the adults. I felt like the TV version lagged a lot by having to cut back and forth, um, and lost a lot of tension that was going on between scenes. Because we would have to have this really scary scene with the kids, and then it just cuts to the adults, I don't know, giving Bev a back rub or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it just, very like, weird. It just, totally, it just totally shifted so much that it didn't really work, I felt. Um, and I think, I think that was a really great choice to, uh, to split the story up here into two different movies. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to say that the casting in the two new movies is fantastic. I mean, almost everybody is terrific. Uh Finn Wolfhard as Richie Tozier, I think, gets all the attention for the kids. Uh, but the kid who plays Eddie Kasprak, I think, is really the real star. I mean, he's totally fantastic. Uh, he plays all his roles super well. And he's also sometimes even funnier than Richie. Um, he really held it together for the kids for me. So Eddie is actually played by Jack Dylan uh, Grazer, who is the son of a, um actor. So he's grown up on these sets, um, in, on the sets of movies like this his entire life. Uh, his dad is like now a famous producer and would just bring him to the sets of the movies that he's producing all the time. So there's a fun story with Bill Skarsgård where it's the first time Bill Skarsgård has worked with any of the kids and it's uh-huh. Jack. Yeah. Um, and it's the scene where they're in the decrepit house and Jack has just broke his arm. Yep. And um, Bill is like walking towards him after getting out of the refrigerator all contorted. And he's mocking him for needing his inhaler and he's like getting in his face and he's drooling and he's screaming and he's whatever. And he said, um, during this, during the filming of the scene, 
uh, Grazer was crying and was gagging while Skarsgård was right in his face, screaming and drooling. Um, and Skarsgård was genuinely concerned uh, that Grazer was like upset and was like concerned for like Grazer's like mental like health during the shooting the episode. Sure. And as soon as they yelled "cut," Grazer's face completely like changed, and Grazer went, "Wow, man, I love what you're doing with the character. You're doing some great stuff." <laughs> and, um, Bill Skarsgård was completely taken aback. I was like, "Oh, uh, thanks." In like his Pennywise makeup. That's pretty funny. That's like so, it's a it's a reverse of the Georgie uh, Tim Curry situation from the first movie. Right. Exactly. I thought that was so funny. Just that. Just the kid. Just. Kids, the kids being more professional here than, than That's right. uh, was expected of him. Yeah, Eddie but, Eddie Casbrack, the character is fantastic. Um, in the in the 1990 movie, it was weird they had him still living with his mom when he's an adult. But in the novel, uh, and I think in the new movie too, he has a, he has a wife. It's just that the wife is like his mom. Uh, in the, right, in the that's what they movie. do in chapter two, is that his wife is exactly like his mom. And he actually calls her mommy over yeah. the phone when he gets all freaked out because Mike called him. That's great. And, and that makes a lot of sense because it's a, it's a parallel of Bev marrying a man who's just like her dad, right? So we see, um, you know, a big theme is like these patterns of abuse or patterns of trauma where uh, Henry Bowers is abused by his dad. Uh, and then later on when he's in the uh, mental institution, he's abused by the orderly. Um, so I thought that making him still live with his mom uh, kind of undercut the kind of like pattern of abuse thing that they're going for. Right. Um, they definitely were not following the theme in uh, that movie. But I mean, there's there's a lot of themes that <laughs> I know. Really, yeah. uh, portray from from page to screen with that movie. Now, we've been having a lot of fun talking about it. We've been very much enjoying ourselves, but I would like to talk about a real American tragedy. Dave, how do you feel about how um, this movie um, tarnishes the image of clowns? <laughs> uh, I, the, the thing that made me the most scared of clowns ever was, uh, are you afraid of the dark? Uh, do you remember that episode where the clown comes out of the TV, like it's long arms? Uh, I do I, not. Oh, my but God. I loved that show. Yeah, super scary. I remember growing up, my Aunt Sue, uh, who, you know, I'd spend a lot of time at their house in Pennsylvania hanging out. Uh, my Aunt Sue was horrified by clowns purely because of, I think, Are You Afraid of the Dark, which we watched when we were like five years old. Well, the World Clown Association president, Pam Mooney, does not agree with you. Pam Mooney feels that um, it is the latest hit uh, to the clowning industry following the creepy clown sightings in 2016 um, and the appearance of the horror clown on the TV series uh, American Horror Story. She, ah. was, um, she was all over the news while this when this movie was released, and she was very upset at the slight um, that was being thrown towards the clowning community. Uh, she said that last year we were really blindsided. We've since uh, created a press kit to prepare clowns for the movie uh, coming out. Oh, my God. Uh, the World Clowning Association Stand on Scary Clowns is the title of the guide. Um, and it tells WCA members that the art of clown is something to be treasured and enjoyed. And just because someone wears a rubber Halloween mask does not make one a clown. Exclamation point. Oh, boy. Uh, the the guide recommends that young children not be exposed to horror movies in the vein of it. And um, people and uh, Pam went on to complain that um, that clowns that she knew within the organization um, had school shows and library shows that were canceled. And it's very unfortunate. And uh, the public are trying to deliver uh, a positive and important message. Um, and it just isn't getting to them because of this movie. 
Man, I get where they're coming from, though, because as a dentist, every time something bad comes out about a dentist, I'm like, bro, come on. Like the guy who shot Cecil the Lion was a dentist or that dude <laughs> or that dude who uh, took the tooth out when he's riding on a hoverboard. It's like, you know, like we don't need more bad publicity. Like I feel where the clowns are coming from, because as a dentist, it's you kind of just want to be like, like, bro, really? Like, you know That's what it's why like. I don't to go be to the dentist because you're all crooks. <laughs> so, so, um, so, uh. Do you have any last thoughts about uh, it? Chapter one, other uh, than it was fantastic, it was it was great. It's it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's great. I mean, um, it, I, I think you're right when you say that it is one of the best horror movies, at least that I've ever seen. It might be my number one horror movie of all time, to be honest with you. Whoa, 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 whoa! We'd fight about that, but I'd say it's definitely on my list of like the greatest of all time. Um, we were going through a list of uh, the fifty greatest horror movies of all time, and it was somewhere um, in the thirties or forties on there. Sure, and I totally felt that it earned its spot on that list way more so than a lot of other movies. Um, this movie grossed one hundred and twenty-three million in its North American opening weekend. Um, it was a record for a horror film and more than double of the previous record holder for Paranormal Activity 3 in 2011. Wow. And it was also the second largest R rating opening ever, just behind Deadpool in 2016. Wow. Um, on a budget of $35 million, uh, it made back its money and more opening weekend with an opening box office of $123 million. Um, it grossed overall $328 million, and this thing was put into sequel production instantly. It came out in late September, and by October 2nd, they were talking, uh, they were in talks with all the actors for making a sequel. Yeah, I mean, that was a great idea. I mean, it, well, first of all, you knew there had to be a sequel anyway, because they only tell half the story. Um, but yeah, I mean... Well, I mean, it didn't have to. If this movie came out and nobody saw it, they weren't going to make a sequel. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, like, let's be honest to. here. They didn't have a script. They didn't have anybody signed on. Like, I know they it was like a stunt to call it It Chapter One, but like, come on. If nobody went and saw this, they weren't making a sequel. Right. The members of the Losers Club from It in 2017 uh, were asked who they would want to play their adult partners in the, in the second upcoming movie. Uh, Finn Wolfhard, who plays Richie Tozer, said Bill Hader. Good uh, for him. Sophia Leas, who played Beverly Marsh, said Jessica Chastain. Uh, Chosen Jacobs, who plays Mike. Uh, Han- Hanlon said Chadwick Boseman uh, Jack uh, Dylan R.I.P. Gra- ja- R.I.P. Chadwick uh, Jack Dylan Grazer who played Eddie Kasparak said Jake Gyllenhaal Wyatt Olef who played Stanley Uris uh, said Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, Jeremy Ray Taylor who played Ben Hanscom said Chris Pratt huh. and Jaden Marshall who played Bill Denborough said Christian Bale and the script for the Chapter 2 movie was written with most of those actors in mind for the roles. And as you can tell, a couple of them got on to those, uh, those roles anyway. So, yeah. Well, Bill Hader was the perfect pick. I mean, he was absolutely spot-on casting. Uh, Chris Pratt would have been a good old Ben, too, now that I think about it. Uh, Bale turned down Bill Denborough. Um, he just didn't, wasn't interested in being in the movie at all. Uh, Bozeman was unavailable because of his obligations with Black Panther. James McAvoy was recommended by Jessica Chastain because they had just worked together um, on X-Men Dark Phoenix, which didn't actually came out way after this movie. Um, and uh, Jessica and Isaiah Muzaffa to play uh, Mike was the last cast. Yeah, Isaiah Mustafa was pretty good. Bill Hader was great. I, Jessica Chastain was great, too. I thought James McAvoy 
wasn't really who I pictured as Bill Denbro. I picture Bill Denbro as like a tall, lanky, skinny, nerdy guy. Um, I honestly, I thought that the 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 casting from the 1990 movie was better than James McAvoy. Really, I thought he did a really great job. I. I mean, it's, it might just be because the guy in the 1990 movie just has to do a Stephen King impression the entire time and yeah, yeah, look, yeah. Like a, look like a, a weird old hippie. But, like, I thought James McAvoy did an amazing job in this role. I feel like he is really held down by my biggest complaint in this movie that they, one, have to keep cutting back to the kids. Right, so you never right. get time with these actors. The first movie, um, Bill Skarsgård is in it less than, I think for less than 20 minutes of the entire runtime for the movie, of this two-hour something movie. Wow. Like, you, the majority of these scenes are just the kids getting to play off one another, getting to know each other. You get a feeling and a sense for each of these characters and who they are and what makes them tick. Yep. Um, one of the best scenes in the whole movie is where they're in um, Ben's room and he has the New Kids on the Block poster uh-huh. on the yep. back of the door. I have and New Bev, Kids on like, the Block written in my notes here, yeah. Bev opens it and lets him know she knows before shutting it so that she doesn't embarrass him in front of the other boys. Uh-huh. Um, like, all those scenes are... Or, or when, after Bev gets all the blood uh, sprayed in her face and all, they all come and clean the um, the, 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 the bathroom tub. to... Yep to 80s uh some 80s rock anthem like it's like it's super corny and cheesy but those are the scenes where like you care about these characters so that when things happen later you actually get a feel for them and in this movie we immediately split the characters up for some reason right after they meet which doesn't yeah, make any horrible. sense it makes the, them all look like idiots the because fetch they, quests yeah really bad they've already faced this monster as kids they know exactly what it's capable of they know um just how um hard it can be for it to fight them and they know how um how uh how much it would just come after them like it'll just it's it's unrelenting in its pursuit of them um them splitting up makes no logical sense Horrible. as adults it's like the scene in but you said cabin in the woods it's like the scene in cabin in the woods we're all they're all out in the woods and the um the one stoner guy is like we absolutely definitely should not split up and they're all like right <laughs> and uh, chris chris helmsworth is like definitely we definitely should not split up and then takes a big whip of like the the smoke that they put into the atmosphere to like make them make bad decisions uh-huh. and chris helmsworth goes let's split up and the one stoner <laughs> guy's like what what are you talking about and they all go in different directions that's how i felt at that point i was like why are we doing this like why are we making this stupid boneheaded decision and the the reason is so we can get more scenes where we have the child actors come back and face off against pennywise yep but we already got a whole movie of that we did that for two hours like there's no reason i know the first movie was really successful we all loved those childhood actors. Um, they all were fantastic in the role. But none of these adult actors ever get the chance to really define this role for themselves because we're constantly cutting back to somebody else playing the character. Uh, I agree entirely. Uh, the fetch quests where they split up is horrible. The only thing that they really need is Silver the bike, uh, which they don't even really utilize because its entire purpose is to wake Bill's wife from her catatonia. Uh, and they don't really do that in the new movie. They do that in nineteen. But that was super dumb. I hated that. Why did we do that in the? Fr- I know. I'm sure that's in the book. And it's I'm in sure the book. Yeah, that's find. why they do it. Yeah, it's so bad. The whole it's scene in weird. the movie. Would, um, it's so uh, cringy when he's riding with her on the front of the bike and she comes to him and she's like, Bill, where are we? And he's like, oh, you remember? Oh my gosh, don't worry, <laughs> honey. As he's careening downhill through traffic. I was like, could you imagine like you come out of like a conatonic state and you're on a bike with your like loved one and they're like, 
Oh, I'm so glad you're awake. You've made it just in time as you see those cars are careening out of control towards you. Like, it, it seems like he's trying to kill you, right? I was going to say, he like comes out of Catatonia and then you have a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> right? it's, it's a murder-suicide situation. It's you, You've awakened just in time for us both to die together and spend eternity with one another. Yeah. An- <laughs> another really so bad. So bad. Another really bad part about It Chapter 2 is that they hammer onto this like Native American peyote ceremony thing and they could have just done just do the alien stuff like that that's as uh, wild as doing the alien stuff so just do the alien stuff I don't know how I I don't know how I feel about that because I don't know if that scene would have been better if um uh James McAvoy ran into a giant alien turtle who explained to him the macroverse and the ritual of chud but i I feel the scene also the way they did it does not work it doesn't make any sense i think it's just as wild so they might as well do the stuff that's actually true to the book rather than make up some other equally ridiculous situation i guess but then also you your stuff with the rest of the movie where only bill and mike like know what's going on so it makes even less sense why Bill would leave the group to go after the bike or like chase that kid to the amusement park. Like he knows exactly what they're up against. He know he's the only one who knows what the stakes are. Right. Why is he now running to the amusement park by himself, leaving everyone at this weird mansion house that they've all like yeah, rented total, Airbnb totally. style? Yeah, totally. Makes crazy. no sense. Uh, um, what what's good about it? Chapter two. One of the things that I like it's, it's a little simple thing is the bait and switch right in the beginning when. Uh, they show adult Ben, and the first thing they show is some overweight man, and then they do the kind of bait and switch, and then they, you realize that actually the guy giving the presentation is older Ben, and he's super attractive, and you're like, oh, he's not fat anymore. Like, that was kind of cute. I do want to be clear here. This isn't a Mulan situation. I do have things I liked about this movie. It's just just right. as opposed with the one that we just reviewed. It's It's bad, but... Overall, there's a lot of things that are very good. Um, the Chinese restaurant scene is great. 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 It's so great. And that's the one – that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's what we need more of in this movie. We need these characters together um, playing off each other in character, defining their own roles. Um, it makes – it's – they – that scene – works so well and then when everything goes to shit and the little baby spider whatever creature crawls out of that yep. um fortune cookie mm-hmm. it's so terrifying it's so scary or the or the the severed children heads in the aquarium like it all works so well and like that's it's another scene where i feel like there's so many things in this that were not intended to come off as comedic when it was shot but that scene of the um the the waitress coming back and seeing Mike just smashing the table with the chair <laughs> is so funny. Yeah. But, um, but it works. It works for that scene really, really well. Um, How about the scene where Bev, uh, adult Bev comes to the house with the naked old lady? Yes. That's it's what like I was... Hansel and Gretel style. That scene is so good. And you get, you actually get some of that backstory stuff that they were intending to shoot for Pennywise in the 1600s. Yep. The scene where she's just looking down the hallway and the door opens and it's Bill Skarsgård in the 1600s staring at her, putting on his makeup is so creepy. Um, the, the woman actress they have, uh, the woman actress they have playing the old lady character is so good, like against Jessica Chastain when they're, um, sharing tea together. Absolutely. That whole scene. And again, it goes back to what what works so well in the first one, where you're using the lighting and the atmosphere and the um, general sense of uh, of depth within this room, where Jessica Chastain can't see 
into that room around the corner because the lights are off and that's where all the creepy stuff happens that's you right. see her first like just run across in like the weird like uh jaunt that she does and then when she yeah, comes when, running out as a giant monster oh my god when she skitters that, around in the background it's like she's like oh god oh it gives me chills just to think about it that's by far one of the best scenes of the movie and that's what kills me is that once we get to the end where they're all facing off about or against Pennywise after they've all split up and gone their separate ways and done their own stuff, I almost don't care in that final showdown against Pennywise. Like it's it's almost boring to me. Like yep. I, the, the the characters haven't earned me caring about all this stuff that is really psychological horror to them personally, and I never got agree. a feeling for who they are personally because we just kept cutting back to. Um, the scenes with the kids when Ben is in the school with Bev and she's smoking a cigarette and like she turns into the human torch or whatever. Uh, like that scene is super great. That scene is awesome, but that should have been in the first movie. We shouldn't just like have to watch that and assume it happened somewhere in between the first movie stuff. Yeah. Like that's it. it oh, it's almost retconning the stuff that happened in the first movie. Um, I know you brought it up before, but the relationship between Richie and Eddie um, is done really, really well here. But them having to cut back to Richie as a kid and almost retcon the stuff that we saw from the first one yeah. almost is a detriment because it's now it feels like I'm not even watching the same character that I just spent two plus whatever hours in the first movie with. It feels like it's almost a new character because none of that was touched upon. Right. They didn't even try and like hit, like get that into the first one. Yeah, they. Um, it, it's not in the book either. In the book, they have a, a purely platonic friendship. Um, so it's nice that they sort of added that in, but you're right. It does kind of feel like they're retroactively attempting to go back and make it meaningful, which is a little silly. I mean, I'd be here for it if it was there, but it, it wasn't. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like, we, I watched the two movies back to back and it was like, I was watching a whole new character portrayal now because now we have to like work in this whole, uh, repressed sexuality thing. Yeah. And like, where, where was that? We, we just, you, all it would have taken was a few lines if that's the direction you wanted to go. I don't know. In it's the book, just, they do have. In, in the book, they do sort of cover um, uh, like a gay character, um, Adrian Mellon, and he's in the uh, It Chapter Two, I think. In the opening, where they yeah. um, he's thrown off the bridge. Yeah. That was a great scene too. Agreed. As well, also, it's a, it's a super good scene. I think it's the opening scene of the book, um, and it's fantastic. You said uh, that Bill Hader was doing such a great comedic job that the movie probably ended up more comedic than they wanted it to. But the actor who plays Eddie. Um, it's his scenes that definitely feel like they were are way more comedic than whatever they're going for. James Ransone. Um, yep. All of his scenes, like the the scene where he's at the pharmacy and he's facing off against uh, Pennywise. Yep, and, Mr. Keene. Um, he, he finds his courage and he starts facing down the leper and then it just starts shooting black uh, uh, stuff into his face while it just call me angel that was like how do you weird. not burst out in the laughter watching that is that not supposed to be a comedic scene yeah. what is going on i feel like they were in the editing room and they just couldn't make it scary no matter what they put in the background and someone was like fuck it like just put this goofiest yeah, thing you could possibly silly. think of in there make it look silly it'll work better but also the scene where he's facing off against um uh, what's the bully's name i'm sorry where the bully comes back um, uh, henry bowers henry bowers comes back and stabs him in the bathroom like uh eddie's like giving a comedic take there too yeah where he's like he's like why'd you stab me in the face and like or whatever you know it's just like i don't know all of his scenes seemed like they were just 
they were they played way more comedic in editing than they intended for them to and they just had to they were forced to almost like make it work and so now this has to be a comedic scene more so than it was ever like meant to be whereas um bill Hader does an amazing dramatic turn um in the scene where he's in the park with pennywise and uh pennywise comes flying off the um the, the lumberjack statue, yeah the lumberjack statue towards him i thought bill Hader did a great job um in all of his scenes trying to get the drama across so. Bill Hader absolutely killed it, and in the past few years, we've really seen his renaissance into like an in, insanely good actor, like in Barry, uh, and any, anything else he's been in has been great. He, he's good in Trainwreck too. Um, he's really like the next big leading man, I think. What we I can't not bring this up. How did you feel about Stan's uh, suicide note at the end, saying to all of his friends that I didn't really want to kill myself, but I knew you needed something to bring you all together. So stupid. In fact, um, one of my biggest gripes with it as a story in the book, in the 1990 movie, and in this movie, uh, even though it is one of my favorite Stephen King stories, is that I think Stan Uris's character is... Um, uh, it could have been cut. Like, I think his character and... and um, Eddie Kasprak's character are sufficiently similar that they could have kind of transformed the two characters into one person. Um, I think it just like if I'm thinking about myself writing a story, like when we do Dungeons and Dragons and I'm the DM, uh, I feel like that character is unnecessarily separate. Uh, I don't know how you would do it with regard to the suicide and all that stuff, but I think that some of Eddie's and Stan's tendencies are sufficiently similar that they could just be combined. Um, so the whole thing with the suicide note and all that stuff just feels like it's fat that could be trimmed from the story. It's not as succinct as it could be. I never read the book, so I don't know. I felt Stan's character was so well-defined in the, um, first chapter one of this, like as a separate character from Eddie. And I feel like his suicide at the beginning of this gives a whole added layer of weight to the situation where there's Stan in arguably in it chapter one is number two behind Bill in of uh, most important characters within the group. I'm, I'm sure they all get like nearly equal screen time. But as when this movie opens, you have Bill seen with Georgie. You have um, Stan at the uh, at the the temple, yep. right? Yep. Um, you, like you get this feeling that like the these two are like the leaders of the group. These are like the two most important guys because Eddie is. Like, uh, like, no offense, a little wimpier than everybody else. Yeah. And Richie's just like a, like a goofy, whatever, bullshitter guy. Um, and for one of them to kill themselves rather than come back and face this monster adds this whole added weight to the situation that I don't know how you could get otherwise, especially when, like, you cut to him and he's having this, like, great life in both this and the TV version. Like, he is, he is living an amazing, fantastic, happy life. He gets this phone call and goes and fucking offs himself because he just can't handle it. Like, it is not happening with him. And I felt like that was a great thing to add to this story. But the suicide note at the end completely ruins it. I don't only feel it's dumb. I feel it's irresponsible. Um, I just want to say this. We should not ever in media be portraying suicide to be a noble and uplifting choice to make 100% especially agree. not one to to motivate your friends to be doing some kind of noble cause please if you ever feel suicidal out there please go seek help do not kill yourself this is this was the worst thing for them to possibly put into this film with this sto- sort of storyline and i was so upset the first time it happened and when it came on again 
um, or the first time I saw it. And then when it came on again through rewatching the movie, I got equally as upset. It's so dumb. It's almost like they're trying to redo the scene in Avengers where Phil Coulson gets killed off. Yeah. And he realizes in his last final moments that, like, he's like, no, it's okay. Like, this will motivate them to come together. Like, I don't want to have to die, but this is going to serve our purpose. But, like, no, they, they tried to rewrite that scene into there. But instead what you get is, hey, uh, I hope my death brought you all together because that was my goal. I'm just going to kill myself. And, like, they all got together anyway. Like, could you imagine if, like, they, like, all got that letter and they none of them went back and now they're reading that note after it's after everything is done. Right, It's like, right. oh, man, I really should have gone back to Derry. Man, I feel like a piece of shit now. <laughs> like, like, what were they going for? Like, this didn't come before the scene at, like, the... We already had the scene at the, at the Chinese food restaurant. We already saw them all get back together and, like, regroup as a team to fight the monster. Yeah, they don't it's even know. It's so unnecessary and unneeded. It actually makes the movie worse, like, like in retrospect, once you get to that point, I look upon everything I just sat through with a like the opposite of rose tinted glasses. I yeah. now like everything that just happened less because that scene happens. Yeah, I would 100% agree. It's uh, a, a dumb part and a, a weird choice amongst uh, many other weird choices um, that I, I also don't think is in the book. Maybe it is. I, I can't remember. But I mean, there's some stuff in the book that they didn't want to include either. So uh, they, it's, it's not all perfect. You said that this might be, uh, Chapter 1 might be your favorite horror movie of all time. This movie pays homage to my absolute favorite horror movie of all time, um, John Carpenter's The Thing. The Thing. Where Stan's head uh, grows spider legs and starts crawling across the room. Yep. That scene is a straight-up homage to The Thing um, in a way that I don't know if everybody watching ever noticed, but Bill Hader says the exact line that is said in that scene in The Thing um, when the spider head starts walking around across the floor. And that that made me pop. I don't know. That's, I just love that scene. I just wanted to bring that up. That's awesome. I didn't notice that at all. That's very cool. Uh, so what do we have next um, on our schedule? Uh, so we have coming up next before Halloween, uh, The Witches. Warner Brothers has just recently announced that this movie that was supposed to be going to theaters will be going to HBO Max um, just in time for Halloween instead. So we will be covering that. And then we will be doing The Haunting, stretching out our spooky season into November. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to ask you, Dave... Um, what Stephen King movie would you like to see made next um, in this sort of fashion with this high budget and this uh, sort of care taken to the story? Uh, one of my personal favorite Stephen King stories uh, that really did not get its due as a TV series is Under the Dome. Uh, it's very similar to it in terms of the world building of the town. Um, and the TV series is fine for a little while, but it goes off the rails really quick. Uh, and it's the perfect encapsulated story to be kind of like a two-part movie, just like this one. Uh, I thought it was a fantastic story. I thought it has one of the best Stephen King villains he's ever written. Uh, maybe literally the number one best villain he's ever written. Uh, and the TV series was just god-awful. Yeah, I feel like you could uh, you could uh, cast Dan Castellaneta in that in the title role for that movie. Sure, and he would do it. He would do a really great job. You didn't. You didn't pick up on my joke. He's he plays Homer Simpson. That's Homer Simpson. They they did that in the Simpson movie. You're you're, you're describing the Simpsons movie. Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Simpsons movie. You're describing the Simpsons movie, right? Um, if I were to, I don't know. So I was like kind of hoping that the quality of it, Chapter One, 
would bring on a whole slew of really high quality Stephen King adaptations from Warner Brothers or another studio. Um, kind of how um, the Disney remakes brought in this slew of like these remakes of the, all these classic like fantasy stories. Um, I really wanted to see kind of more high quality Stephen King movies get made. But unfortunately, what really ha- ended up happening is kind of like you said – all these studios just bought up the rights and started just pumping out Stephen King movies with no regard to the budget or the quality. Um, so yeah, if you I know, was to pick, no, I was going to say speaking no, of ahead. speaking of with with no regard to quality, man, they really fucked up the Dark Tower, and I'll never forgive them for doing that. Or ironically, um, it 1990 got uh, made because Pet Cemetery was such a huge box office success. This movie gets made and then they remake Pet Cemetery. That's and right. arguably it's much lo- lower in quality and, um, and it's, care it's to the story great. than the original movie. So yeah, it's not um, awesome. There's I, I, if I was to pick for what Stephen King property, I would like to see give, given this attention, uh, to storytelling and care, um, to quality to be made next. I'm, feel like i want to see another version of the shining sure um i know i'm sure there's a lot of uh uh film fans out there who feel like that's heresy for me to say um with stanley kubrick's uh version being so high regarded but i feel like just remaking that movie the same way that it chapter one took the original story um i mean it the it 1990 is not anywhere near stanley kubrick's version of uh the shining but taking the story and kind of uh, moving it from the 1950s to the 80s and adapting it to a more modern storytelling i feel like there'd be something to be done there um to make uh the shining just as good as an updated version for today's audiences yeah um especially because the shining kubrick's version of the shining is sufficiently different from the book that if they did another adaptation there's definitely room to tell the story a little bit differently and then you mentioned The Stand as being one of uh, his best books. I'd My really like God. to see a, a movie made out of The Stand yeah. um, that has actually done really well. Especially so. because we could do it for the podcast because there was a Stand miniseries uh, in the 90s. It would be a great episode. Um, the Stephen King just came out with his second to most recent book, his most recent novel, but he, he came out with a, sh- uh, list of, or a, a collection of short stories this year. Uh, right, the novel right before that is called The Institute, uh, and that's kind of like Stephen King's horror version of the X-Men. Uh, and that movie would be fantastic if they did it correctly, because, again, it has a really despicable villain, very hateable bad guy. Uh, and so you're really rooting for the main characters. And it also has a fantastic uh, showdown ending. Uh, so that could be great. Awesome. Studios, get on it. Give us more good Stephen King stuff. We There's too much bad Stephen King stuff out there. We need more good Stephen King stuff. If somebody can get Maximum Overdrive and do a good version of Maximum Overdrive, <laughs> I'd really love to see that. Um, please tune in for the rest of our spooky episodes through October um, with the witches and the haunting coming up next. And if you would like to subscribe to our Patreon and throw us a little bit of money, you'll be able to vote for our Christmas episode in December. Yeah. You know, if you feel so inclined, please float us some money because we all float down here. And you'll float too. Mm-hmm.